Greetings, everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are. If you like what you are hearing, down in the description box below, you can buy me a coffee, as I would truly appreciate it. It helps me and the channel out. Thank you so much. This video selected stories is something I hold dear to my heart, as I too was a victim of stalking. I think it's very important to tell these stories, and it's also very important for you to keep safe no matter where you go or who you meet. With all of that being said, it is time to go back to ashes, for when we arise from the ashes, we are a bigger, better, stronger, and happier person in the morning. Sit back, relax, kick back and grab a snack, or tuck in and get warm and enjoy this dose of vocal melatonin entitled True Stalker Stories. Disclaimer. Some of these stories may be disturbing to some as some are graphic in nature. Listing discretion is advised. A few years ago, my anxiety was high. I was already at a point in my life where I thought I was a little out of it. But... That was amplified by a lot when I kept repeatedly hearing noises outside my window. Like every single night, it just wouldn't stop. I would finally get so freaked out, I'd go wake my parents up and get them to look outside. But they never found anything. I started to think I was crazy or just subconsciously seeking attention. One morning... My grandfather discovered one of our lawn chairs beneath our bathroom window. It's pretty high up, and the bottom pane is fogged, so I'm not sure the chair even helped, but it was left there regardless. The next night, heard sounds again. Nothing. The night after, however, we checked outside and discovered something that made my stomach churn. A small stepladder was sitting directly outside of my window, back just enough to allow someone to sit on it but still see. On my windowsill was a bag of now cold McDonald's, which is just up the street from me. Most of the food was still in there, but still... Somebody had been watching me doing absolutely nothing of interest in my room without me knowing for I don't know how freaking long. The cops were called, but nothing happened. I felt crazier than ever. No one was to be found, but at least we had some evidence that someone that shouldn't be hovering around our house was at my window watching intently through the blinds in a space between the two curtains. I heard noises the next night. I ran outside. Nothing. Earlier in the night, I had sewn my curtains together, which hopefully made it harder to see in. Apparently it did, because now the person had taken to climbing on top of our air conditioning unit, and from there climbing onto our Herbie slash garbage can 
then standing on that so that he could see above where the drapes went. The handprints and shoe prints were left on the lid to prove it. I should also mention that there were new holes in my screen, and I heard these holes be created. He took a stick and sharpened it somehow. We found it outside my window and was trying to stealthily break away the screen bit by bit. The hole is still there. The next night, I distinctly heard the gravel near my window crunch. There was simply no mistaking that sound. As stealthily as I could, I let out a small moan he surely heard and rolled just out of view as if I were sleeping, then pressed myself against a wall out of view of the window, very quietly opened my door and crept down the hall. My heart was pounding. Normally, I knock on my parents' door, but I knew the slightest sound would make the bastard bolt, so I quietly opened their door and snuck in, then informed them that there was, without a single doubt, someone outside my window. They didn't mind the intrusion and got up, got dressed, formulated a plan, and crept to the back door. I ran to the bathroom to stand on the edge of our tub and peeked out the window, just as the back door was thrown open, and my parents ran outside like morons. And sure enough, they saw him. They started screaming as the man leapt off the herbie and bolted down our driveway, which was what I was looking at. They screamed all sorts of horrible things at the top of their lungs. You sick mother effer, I'm gonna effing kill you, my dad said. You effing freak, said my mom. He ended up escaping across the street hiding behind a house adjacent to us. The balls on this bastard. He kept peeking out at us as we all stood outside, but we wanted to leave him there so the cops could finally nab him. They were called, they came, and they searched. But again, they never found him. He must have hopped a fence or something. Still to this day, I hear sounds outside my window, even in the dead of winter. But he's never out there. He might have just been a peeper, but he targeted me specifically, and for months, until he was almost caught. What really, really ticks me off is that once he lost interest in me because it was too unsafe, he moved onto a house down the street with two little girls. He actually managed to get in through their window, and their dad caught him just standing in the middle of the room, watching them sleep. I still don't think he was caught even then. All I know is that it could have been way worse, but it messed me up. I trust the men in my neighborhood even less now. The men around here stare very blatantly. I've been chased home by one. 
I've had a guy try to jerk me into his car when I was passing him, telling him no, I didn't need a ride, and to leave me alone. All these years later, I still hear stuff outside my window and freak out. It's messed up. I turn off my lights entirely to exercise. I do my best to avoid the windows while I undress. It just scarred me, even though it wasn't a huge deal and he never got to me. Still to this day, I am so messed up mentally and emotionally. I'm so scared to even sleep in my room. Tatiana Tarasov is a prime example of a stalking victim who did not have the proper laws in place to protect her. In 1968, Tatiana became friends with Prescient Potter, a University of California, Berkeley student from India. They shared a friendly kiss at a New Year's Eve party, which gave Prescient the impression that Tatiana was attracted to him but Tatiana soon clarified that she was not interested in a romantic relationship. Prescient could not handle the rejection and developed an unhealthy obsession with Tatiana, often secretly recording their conversations together. In the summer of 1969, Tatiana left on a trip to Brazil, so Prescient went to see Dr. Lawrence Moore a psychologist at the university hospital. During one of their therapy sessions, Prescient openly expressed his intentions to kill Tatiana. Dr. Moore believed Prescient was suffering from paranoid schizophrenia and informed the campus police. But after police interviewed Prescient, they determined that he was not dangerous and decided to let him go. When Tatiana returned from Brazil, she was not informed about Prescient's threats against her. On October 27th, Prescient went to Tatiana's house and shot her with a pellet gun before stabbing her 14 times. Prescient immediately turned himself in and was convicted of second-degree murder. But his conviction was overturned because the jury at his trial was not properly instructed. Rather than retry him, the state elected to deport Prescient back to India after serving only five years. Tatiana's family would sue the hospital for their failure to warn her about Prescient's threats. This led to a Supreme Court case, Tarasov versus Regents of the University of California which ruled that mental health professionals have a duty to forgo confidentiality and warn individuals who are threatened by patients. This story is about an ex-boyfriend. The stalking started after the breakup, but the entire relationship was screwed. We had been friends for a few years when we started dating 
my junior year of high school. After we started dating, he completely became a different person, or maybe let the true him shine through. He'd always grab my phone and look through my text messages and call logs. He wanted to be together all the time, no matter what. Even if I was studying, he had already graduated high school and worked full time. I'd have random crazy girls calling me, telling me they were going to beat me up or they were going to screw my man. He'd be insanely jealous, and when we'd fight, he'd get so mad he'd throw his phone across the room or across the street. The whole relationship was crazy, and I tried to end it at least six to seven times over the one-and-a-half-year span of it all. Every time we'd break up, he'd go batshit crazy and do the I'm going to kill myself bit. He'd call and call and call and want to talk and talk and talk until eventually I would say, if I agree to get back together with you, will you back off? Not healthy, I know, but I had stuff to do, sports, school, and a job, and didn't have time to deal with it. It was easier just to agree to get back together. One time, I broke up with him. He told me he had been having headaches, so he went to the doctor that day and found out that he had a brain aneurysm and only had eight months to live. We had two friends die in car accidents on the same day, exactly one year apart. About four months before this and a year or four months before this. So, when I realized that eight months from then would be the same month as our friend's death, I was completely freaked out. And we got back together because I honestly believed we had some curse against our friends and that exact date. Wouldn't you know it, that those eight months came and went without a single trip back to the doctor for his brain aneurysm? So, here's where it gets crazy. My senior year, I had no idea how to get out of this relationship, so I started looking into out-of-state colleges, figuring there was no way he'd follow me. If I could just put up with his crazy until that summer, I'd be off in a magical world of college and no crazy boyfriend. He must have seen the brochure from the college I was interested in, because suddenly he wanted to go to that college. He even went as far as taking the SATs. I knew my plan wasn't going to work. He'd follow me wherever I went. So... What did I do? I joined the freaking army. That'll show him. Try following me there, right? Next thing I know, he's meeting with a freaking recruiter. Of course, the likelihood of him being stationed where I was is very slim. But I didn't know that at the time. I was young and scared. I realized the army was a dumb idea 
and wrote a letter to the commander, commissioner, whoever is the head honcho of recruitment. I explained that I had lied on my physical, as the recruiters tell you to do, and sent a copy of all my medical records. I was let out shortly after that. I don't remember how it finally happened, but we broke up. I changed my phone number and cut off connection with all of our shared friends. Finally, the end of crazy. Free at last. Or so I thought. For the next few months after the breakup, until I left for college, he'd randomly show up where I was. The movie theater, the tennis courts, restaurants that we never went to before. He'd want to talk, but I'd always just say I had to leave immediately. He'd get furious if he saw me with another guy, no matter who the guy was. It could have been my cousin, and he would have flipped his shit. I still have no idea how he knew where I was going. Once I left for college, 90 minutes away, I thought it'd be over. I heard he had come up to my college a few times to see other friends, but I'd stay in my dorm those nights, afraid that I'd see him if I went out. During my freshman year of college, one of our close friends from that same group killed himself. I came home to attend the funeral. My ex was pretty distraught, since this was the third friend of ours to die in three years. I had no choice but to be nice to him. I mean, it was a funeral for our good friend. After the funeral, everyone was going over to a friend's house just to spend time together. I didn't want to go, but my friends convinced me. While at the house, the ex starts talking to me. I act polite and try to avoid him. This doesn't work. He's right next to me all night, trying to kiss me, put his arm around me, whatever he could get. He started telling people that we were back together. Screw my life. I tell him I'm leaving. He freaks out. He gets my number somehow from someone at the party. He starts texting and calling and texting and calling all the time. This continued for five years. Five long years. I moved out of state now, and I don't talk to anyone from back then anymore. Finally, the phone call stopped. I still get weird whenever I go back to my hometown. I'm constantly surveying the area, scared that I'm going to see him again. And if I happen to be with my special someone, I won't even venture into any part of the city that I think there's a chance he could be in. In 1991, a 16-year-old student at Cones Toga Valley High School in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, named Lori Show, became the victim of a nonstop ordeal of stalking and harassment. 
Lori was targeted by a classmate named Lisa Michelle Lampert, who was upset that Lori had briefly dated a mutual accomplice, Lawrence Butch Yunkin. Michelle had recently become pregnant with Butch's child and was obsessively jealous of Lori, believing that she was trying to steal her boyfriend. In actuality, Butch had allegedly sexually assaulted Lori, and she wanted nothing to do with him. Nonetheless, Michelle frequently harassed Lori, taunting her with obscene phone calls and openly threatening her whenever she was in public. Lori's mother, Hazel Show, attempted to file assault charges against Michelle, but it did little to stop her. On December 21st, Hazel received a phone call from a counselor asking her to drop by the school for a meeting about Lori. It turned out the call was just a diversion to get Hazel out of the residence, leaving Lori alone. When Hazel returned home, she was horrified to discover that her daughter had been murdered. Lori's throat had been slashed and she had been stabbed several times. She used her dying words to tell her mother that Michelle was responsible. The next day, Michelle was arrested along with an accomplice named Tabitha Buck. Butch Yunkin was also arrested for dropping the two girls off at Lori's residence, but claimed he did not participate in the murder. Michelle and Tabitha were both given life sentences, while Butch received a lesser sentence for testifying against them. The incident prompted Hazel Show to campaign for stronger anti-stalking laws in Pennsylvania, which went into effect in June of 1993. I recently moved back to my hometown not too long ago and reconnected with an old friend. Her brother got out of prison around the same time. I went to visit her and he was there. The visit goes great for the exception that her brother will not stop staring at me. I don't think too much about it. I'm accustomed to creepers and figure I've known the family since I was a teenager, many moons ago. I just thought I was creeped out over nothing. Turns out I was wrong. Fast forward a few months. The same friend and I go to a show. We had a bit of car trouble before leaving there. The friend's brother happens to be there with his friends. He begins by making lewd comments to me and spends the entire night trying to get uncomfortably close to me. I use his sister as a human shield. After the show, I get separated from my friend due to the crowd. Her brother, however finds me right away and insists that his sister told him to give me a ride since her car is acting wonky. 
I refuse, and he is trying to pull me towards his car, or a dark alley, who knows. I yell for him to let me go, and grab the attention of some nearby good guys who come to my aid. When my friend finally finds me, I tell her what happened. She lets me know she never told him to give me a ride. Two weeks later, I begin to get texts from her phone. Sexually suggestive texts. I love my friend, but I'm pretty sure she doesn't want to see me naked, wrapped around her like some of the messages suggest. I call her mother's landline. She asks if I have seen her daughter's phone as it's missing. I tell her I got some texts from it. She says she will call me back. In the meantime, I figure out it's her brother as he won't stop texting and finally calls. I'm in your neighborhood. I'm coming over and you better let me in. No thank you, sir. I call his mom back and let her know what is going on. I look out my window and there is his car parked across the street. It's still running. He's just sitting there and I can see him talking on the phone. He looks like he's screaming. In the meantime, a police car happens to drive by. He takes off ASAP. His mom calls me back, apologizing for her son's behavior and tells me he won't be bothering me ever again as she is the one that called the police. Ever since then, he has finally left me alone. In 2002, Colette Dwyer was living through a terrible nightmare. She had been stalked and harassed by a man she believed to be a serial killer, but could not get the police to take her seriously. Dwyer lived in St. Francisville, Louisiana, and became acquainted with Derek Todd Lee, a customer who frequently hung around her place of employment. Lee soon developed an obsession with Dwyer, who rebuffed his advances. In 1999, Lee forced his way into Dwyer's apartment, claiming that he wanted to love and take care of her. She refused Lee's offer to accompany him to Lafayette, a decision which may have saved her life. Lee was charged with stalking and received probation, but soon went to prison for another unrelated crime. Two years later, Lee was released and started stalking Dwyer again. Not long after that, Dwyer heard about the murder of a Baton Rouge woman named Charlotte Murray Pace and became convinced Lee was responsible. She notified the police, who investigated Lee, but didn't bother to take his DNA because they were convinced the perpetrator was white. Dwyer contacted the police again after the murder of a woman named Pam Kennemore, but they still didn't believe Lee was responsible. 
Finally, in May 2003, Lee was questioned for the sexual assault of another woman and finally had his DNA taken. The DNA wound up linking him to the murders of Pace and Kenimore. In total, Lee's DNA would be linked to the murders of seven women, and he was nicknamed the Baton Rouge Serial Killer. Lee was sentenced to death for his crimes and currently sits on death row at Louisiana State Penitentiary. Sadly, three of Lee's murders might have been prevented had the police not ignored Colette Dwyer. I was in a 7-Eleven, and this guy kept smiling at me across the coffee counter. Okay, no big deal. Happens sometimes. He starts talking to me. Says he thinks he knows a friend of mine. Now that I think about it, it was a generic name like Matt or Chris. I don't know. I was young and stupid. I should also mention he had been in an accident years back. It was mentally challenged because of it. So, I gave him my number and told him to text me sometime. He texted me before I even got home. It hadn't even been ten minutes. Something along the lines of, You're pretty. I can't stop thinking about you. Blah, blah. We should hang out. So, young and stupid me says, Sure, I have to go to Borders tomorrow. Want to come along? After that day, he starts texting me all the time, even if I don't respond. Random things that could also be, I want to get to know you. So I didn't think anything of it. After a week or so of this, and realizing he was in no way my type, I started blowing him off. Never met up with him again because I felt something was off about this guy. I told him I met someone and he started being weird as hell. Telling me he's in love with me. He cannot stop thinking about me. All this weird obsessive stuff. I tell him to F off. Stop texting me. You're crazy and can't love me if you don't even know me and you're freaking me out. A few days later, he texts me that he's sorry and wants to hang out. I tell him I'm out and busy. I was at home with a friend. He says, okay, I'll wait. I'm thinking, what the hell, wait? My friend and I walk through my house to the kitchen, passing the bay window. And I see this guy parked right outside my house. I never told him where I lived. Never told him my last name. And even so, the house is under my mother's name, which is completely different from mine. I tell my friend, she tells me to text him and say something along the lines of, 
My friend is at my house. Are you parked in front of it? You're creeping her the F out. You need to leave now. He tells me, okay, he's leaving, and he's sorry. We watch from the window. The dude backs up, my dead-end street, until he's blocked by trees, parks, and just sits there. I text him again. Really? She watched you. She can still see you. Leave, or I'm calling the cops. He backs to the end of my street and starts telling me, It's a public street. There's nothing you can do. Just talk to me. We stayed in the house and called a bunch of guy friends. I texted Creepo and told him if he won't leave, our friends will make him leave. He finally goes, but keeps texting me every day. Finally, my current fiancé, at the time we had just started dating, tells him if he doesn't stop, he'll beat the living crap out of him. I block his number. He finally stops. A few months later, he starts texting me from a new number. He ended up changing his number four times throughout all of this to get around me blocking him. I still love you. And stuff out of nowhere. I don't respond and he finally stops. A few months later, I'm pregnant and my fiancé and I have been engaged for six months. This guy pops up out of nowhere. I go ballistic. I call the cops. I let them know everything. I file a report. I inform Creepo of this and tell him if he ever contacts me again, I will take it as a threat against me and my son and family, and he will regret it. My fiancé finally gets his number and threatens him one last time. It's been almost two years with no contact. Thank God for my fiancé. In 1986, there were no stalking laws on the books, which forced 15-year-old Sandy Shaw to make an unfortunate decision she would regret. Sandy lived in Las Vegas and was relentlessly harassed by 21-year-old James Cotton Kelly, who kept propositioning her to pose for nude pictures. Cotton called Sandy's house so often that her mother finally contacted the police. But, since there were no stalking laws in place, there was nothing they could do. In desperation, Sandy turned to an 18-year-old friend named Troy Kell, asking him to rough Cotton up until he backed off. On September 29th, Sandy, Troy, and another teenager named Billy Moret drove Cotton out into the desert to enact their plan. To Sandy's surprise, Troy pulled out a gun and shot Cotton six times in the face. In the ensuing days, Sandy allegedly brought some teenage friends to see Cotton's corpse. 
when one of these friends reported the body to the police. The three perpetrators were arrested for the crime that would be dubbed the show-and-tell murder. Billy took a plea bargain to testify against Troy, who was given a life sentence for the murder. Even though Sandy claimed she did not know that Troy would kill Cotton, she was also sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Years later, one of Sandy's friends confessed that he took the teens to view Cotton's body and that Sandy was not present. Sandy always expressed genuine remorse about what happened and the State Board of Pardons and Parole eventually believed her claims that she was just a desperate stalking victim who did not intend for anyone to get killed. Sandy's life sentence was commuted and she was finally paroled in December 2007. I have or had a friend from high school who definitely fits the stalker type. Basically, it was common knowledge that he had a thing for me. I kept rejecting him. First more subtly, and then just downright, no, never, not going to happen, ever. I figure, whatever, we're in high school, he'll get over it. Eventually, I'm in my senior year of college. His sister goes to a university a bit south of mine, whereas he's a bit north. They ask if they can meet up at my place and stay the night, so we can all get together and visit again. I say that's fine. Things go pretty well. Eventually, they both leave. My roommates have some of those magnetic letters they keep on the fridge, which I don't pay much attention to. But the morning after he left, my roommate is obviously reading something. She turns to me and asks me if I wrote this. I read it, and it's this ridiculously over-the-top love poem. I'm immediately horrified because I know exactly where this came from. My roommates are just laughing at me. A few days later, I get an email from the guy. He talks about the poem and how he woke up in the middle of the night and saw me reading it and how hot that was or whatever. I'm trying to figure out how the hell he could have seen me reading a poem I never saw until after he'd left already, when I remember that his sister had dyed her hair the same color as mine. So, without his glasses, he must have mistaken her for me. More time passes while I try to avoid the guy in the hopes that he'll get the message. I've been trying to impart on him for years now. I start looking at jobs abroad for when I graduate. The guy sends me an email about how if I'm going to move abroad, we really need to get married so that he can justify following me to his parents 
and how he's going to need me to support him when he does follow me because he has no desire to learn the language of the country I'm planning on going to. He figures this is a mutually beneficial arrangement as eventually I'll be able to profit off the tax deductions one gets from being married. So even though he knows I'm not interested in him. This is clearly the most logical option for me, so I don't wind up dying, sad and alone, after paying full taxes for my whole life. It devolves into this ramble about how he hates characters in TV shows and books, who do the whole, I just want the person I love to be happy, whoever that is because he thinks it's more logical for them to just kill that other person and narrow the love interest's options. I replied to the email, completely pissed off and more creeped out than I have ever been in my life. He seems to get the message and apologizes, and I cut off ties as best I can. Most of our friends are mutual and I'm pretty close to his family. He later gets a girlfriend. I figured this was a good thing. Maybe he's moved on. She ended up adding me on Facebook and starts talking to me. She goes on about how the sex is amazing and I'm really missing out. And how I should just really sleep with him. I tell her I'm in no way interested. She goes on about her other boyfriend back home and how all four of us could get married together on the same day. Completely repulsed, I blocked her too. It's been three years since then, and now he's back in my hometown and moved in with the only three close friends I have from high school. They seem to think he's finally over it, so I can only hope, possibly my distaste for My Little Pony has dropped me off the pedestal that he has put me on. The invention of the internet led to the invention of a new form of harassment called cyberstalking, which wasn't criminalized until 1999. The first person to be charged under this new statute was a 50-year-old Los Angeles security guard named Gary De La Pinta. Three years beforehand, De La Pinta had developed an obsessive attraction to Randy Barber, a younger woman from his church. De La Pinta frequently followed and stalked Barber, who always spurned his advances. The harassment eventually became so bad that Barber convinced the church's elders to ban Della Pinta from the congregation. Della Pinta then decided to go online to exact sadistic revenge. During the summer of 1998, Della Pinta signed up for several sex-related chat rooms and began to impersonate Barber. 
Della Penta left several personal ads under Barber's name, stating that she fantasized about being sexually assaulted by men who showed up at her apartment. Unfortunately, he also attached Barber's address to those ads. During one five-month period, six men would show up at Barber's apartment, claiming they were there to fulfill her fantasies. Since Barber never went online and did not even own a computer, she was absolutely horrified and turned all the visitors away. Della Penta even created a fake email address under Barber's name. And whenever anyone contacted him, Della Penta would provide instructions about how to break into her apartment and bypass the security system. Thankfully, Barber found out what Della Penta was doing before she was physically harmed. Della Penta was arrested on charges of cyberstalking and sentenced to six years in prison. Okay, so, there is this guy I met at the same time I met my current boyfriend. I even met him in the same place. About ten years older and totally not my type. I only talked to him when absolutely necessary. Altogether, maybe two hours of completely impersonal and polite. I don't have the guts to tell you to F off conversation. Well, my boyfriend and I started dating, and the other guy blows it. He ends up following us to a club. I noticed him. I freak out and run to the bathroom with a girlfriend. My boyfriend then goes over to talk to him. The guy starts acting like a five-year-old and even starts crying. We ended up leaving. About a month later, I find a creepy love letter in my mail. He had delivered it himself. That creep had followed me to my door and found out where I lived. Fast forward one year. I no longer frequent the place I met him because he basically lives there. Neither does my boyfriend. Apart from a few awkward, unavoidable run-ins in the city, nothing happened. Until exactly a year after I started dating my current boyfriend. I get a card in the mail, delivered by that guy, asking me out as if nothing happened and as though we were dating. It was a whole year of no contact. So, I didn't react. Me and my boyfriend ended up moving, and the summer we did, I started noticing that guy at the mall. First, I thought it was a coincidence, but then a shop owner I know tells me that guy is following me and keeps hiding when I turn around. What the hell? I ended up telling the shop owner the whole story. He then promised to inform other owners he knows 
and to call mall security the next time he sees this creep. It's been well over two years. I don't want to work as a waitress, even though I desperately need the money, because I know he would find me and sit in the restaurant all day and night just watching me. I don't want to work anywhere near the place I met him, which is basically anywhere near a city center. I don't go to the mall alone anymore. I don't go to certain supermarkets and cafes because I know he frequents them. I don't even know this guy's last name. He controls everywhere I go, everywhere I move. I'm constantly cautious about where I go. I wished I could leave the city, but I can't. And even if I did, he knows both my first and last name. And I only know his first name and what he looks like. He can find me easily, and it's going to be even easier once I finish university, since I aim for a university teaching position, and they display your info on the internet. They have to, for the students. He could come to my open classes or lectures. He could follow me again. I'm hoping to eventually find out his last name, so that I can finally get a restraining order against this creep. In April 1984, 35-year-old Richard Farley was a veteran employee at Electromagnetic Systems Labs Incorporated, a defense contractor in Sunnyvale, California. When 22-year-old Laura Black was hired to work at ESL, Farley instantly became obsessed with her. He constantly asked Black out and left her gifts, but she always turned him down. Over the next four years, Farley's obsession with Black became very unsettling. He wrote her over 200 letters and showed up at her residence so frequently that she was forced to move several times. Black finally went to ESL's Human Resources Department to complain about Farley, who was ordered to attend counseling sessions and leave Black alone. However, Farley's behavior became even more threatening, and ESL finally let him go in May 1986. In spite of this, Farley's harassment of Black did not come to an end, and she would file a temporary restraining order against him on February 8, 1988. A hearing for the matter was scheduled in court on February 17th. However, the day before the hearing, Farley drove his motor home to the ESL parking lot. He had several different guns with him, along with over 1,000 rounds of ammunition. After shooting his first victim in the parking lot, Farley proceeded into the ESL building with all of his weapons and opened fire. 
Farley shot several employees before arriving at Black's office and shooting her twice. Farley engaged the police in a five-hour standoff before he decided to surrender. While Black survived, a total of seven employees lost their lives and three more were wounded. Farley was found guilty of seven counts of first-degree murder and is currently sitting on death row at San Quentin. And now, my true story of suffering from being stalked. I let a roommate move in with me as he had nowhere to go because his mother had kicked him out of the house. All seemed to be going well. We got along just fine. We both worked, shared the same living space. Things started getting weird when I noticed he was abusing my dog and pretty much taking things of mine that didn't belong to him. Eventually, I kicked him out. A few months go by, and I'm at work one night. I had new roommates then. I get a phone call that someone was at the door that they did not recognize. I finish my shift at work and finally get to my apartment. I didn't see anything. I ended up coming in, doing my nightly thing and getting ready for bed. Unbeknownst to me, he still had a key to the apartment, as my apartment refused to change the locks after I kicked him out. I should also mention here that I had filed a restraining order, as I was pissed off that he was abusing my dog. Well, I'm sitting there, chilling after work, and... My door opens, and it's him. I ask him to get the hell out, and he's violating his restraining order. He's obviously drunk and doesn't care. We get into a physical altercation in which he seriously tried to strangle me to death. After I finally get him off of me, he then proceeds to pull a knife and hold it to my throat. Luckily for me, he was drunk and unsteady. I ended up kicking him off of me and jumping off my balcony. I lived on the second floor of the apartment building. I called the police and he was arrested immediately and taken to jail. He gets out of jail and still tries to show up at the apartment. Finally, after the second violation of the restraining order, he goes to jail for... 120-something-odd days. I don't remember how long it was. Eventually, he was released, and I still continued to get numerous texts and phone calls and would see him around town anywhere I went. Eventually, he left me alone. I still remember it like it was yesterday. It's not like I was scared of him or anything, but he did actually, you know, hold a knife to my throat. That's something that's pretty scary. I have healed and since moved on, and I always advocate for everyone to please stay safe.
And that, dear listeners, is the end of these true stalker stories. If you or anyone you know is suffering from the dangers of a stalker, please do not hesitate to call the police. And if you know the individual's name, I encourage you to get a restraining order and take all safety precautions necessary. Please be careful out there. Until then, I'll read to you next time. Have yourself a great morning, a great afternoon, or a good night.
This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.